Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, but it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, France 24, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. Japanese leaders say that their international tension is at the highest point since World War II. Japan will spend over $300 billion on the military over the next five years. The plan to build a new U.S. military base in Okinawa, rejected by local citizens, has been forced by the Japanese Supreme Court. A United Nations relief agency has called on the international community to help resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict. NHK Japan Japanese leaders say international tensions are at their highest point since World War II. Defense Minister Kihara Minoru is overseeing a major shift in policy. He's shared ideas with his U.S. counterpart on modernizing their alliance and tackling shared challenges. Kihara chose the U.S. as his first overseas destination since being appointed to his post last month. He met with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon. Kihara has inherited a plan to spend more than $300 billion on defense over five years. Unilateral changes to the status quo by force and such attempts can never be condoned in any part of the world, including the Indo-Pacific region. We support your government's bold decisions to invest in advanced capabilities, including counter-strike, Austin cited what he called China's coercive behavior, North Korea's dangerous provocations, and Russia's reckless war of choice. He says teamwork with allies, including South Korea and Australia, will make the Indo-Pacific safer and more secure. Kihara says his government hopes to fast-track the purchase from the U.S. of hundreds of Tomahawk missiles. The plan would be to use them to strike distant targets in the event of a counterattack. Kihara says he wants the self-defense forces to have the missiles by 2025, a year earlier than planned. The troubled plan to relocate a U.S. military base in Japan's southern prefecture of Okinawa has hit more resistance from local officials. The governor did not approve the central government's landfill project by Wednesday's deadline. Tamaki Deni says he's been speaking about the issue with residents and scholars. For years, the central government has been working to move the U.S. Marine Corps of Tenma Air Station from the densely populated city of Ginowan to Nago. Okinawa wants the base moved out of the prefecture completely. Reclaiming an offshore site was to be the first step of construction, but it was found to be too soft. That led the central government to revise its construction plan, which Okinawa rejected. The case eventually landed in Japan's Supreme Court, which upheld Tokyo's order and obliged Okinawa's governor to approve the plan. 
with the deadline passed, the central government is expected to ask a court to approve the plan by proxy to finally move ahead. The head of a UN agency that provides support to refugees has called on the international community to resolve the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Philip Lazzarini is the Commissioner General of the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. He spoke to NHK in Tokyo on Monday. His agency provides food and educational support to roughly 5.9 million refugees, including those in neighboring Jordan and Lebanon. But it is struggling financially. Lazzarini called for continued support to refugees. More and more feel abandoned by the international communities in a region where you have growing despair, growing despair, uh, distress, and also growing sense of hopelessness. It is true that the attention is a lot on Ukraine, but that's not when we have lost the attention on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It started before. His comments come as peace negotiations remain stalled, and violence has flared up this year between Israeli and Palestinians. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard at 10 p.m. at 13.710 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. Next, France 24. The European Union has gotten closer to reaching a deal on refugees and migrants. Voting is underway on a referendum in Australia on formally recognizing the indigenous population in the Constitution and creating a so-called voice to Parliament. This would only be an advisory body on matters related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but there is growing opposition among the white people, especially the older rural voters. October 14th is the final day for voting. France 24. Now, the European Union's 27 member states have today reached a deal on refugees and migrants. It concerns how to share caring for people during crisis situations and how to organise financial aid as well. To tell us what's been agreed, Armin Georgian, our Europe editor, is with us. So, Armin, just tell us about this deal. Yes, it hasn't come out of nowhere. Obviously, negotiations have been going on for weeks. There's been a basic agreement in principle uh, since the end of September, really. But what's happened is that the differences between Italy and Germany have narrowed, and that has paved the way for a compromise, which has today been approved at the level of EU ambassadors. So that means the permanent representatives of the EU member states who are based in Brussels. Uh, What that means is that uh, negotiations can uh, basically begin, perhaps not immediately, uh, but uh, with uh, the European Parliament and the European Council. That was mentioned today by uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission. And all of this will be discussed at the informal a meeting of heads of state and government in Granada in Spain in Friday. So it's very much a, a process rather than a specifically 
uh, major breakthrough today, if you will. And Armin, just remind us then what the proposed Migration and Asylum Pact actually does. I think we have to go back in a way to the big migrant crisis of 2015 to 16, which was a big trauma for European political elites. And that's really informed all of these discussions for uh, for the last seven or eight years. Uh, Back then, uh, you might remember Angela Merkel, the German leaders, her famous phrase, we can do it, wir schaffen das, we can take in a large influx of migrants, we can make this work. There's been a big shift since those times. No European leader talks about this issue the way uh, Angela Merkel did back then, and certainly the German leadership doesn't take that kind of approach. Nowadays, we have very much uh, a focus on other things like security. So, for example, how to uh, simplify and speed up asylum-related procedures, how to hold migrants at the EU's external borders for up to 40 weeks mm -hmm. in certain circumstances. Uh, to be fair, there's also been talk uh, under this proposed asylum migration pact, there's been talk of solidarity helping frontline states like Italy and Greece. Uh, that there's been talk of, you know, making sure there are legal routes for migrants into the EU so they don't attempt dangerous crossings. But ultimately, uh, we're in a European election year, uh, a campaign year, where security is a very, very centre stage and European elites know that the migration issue is fuel for the various populist parties across the EU that are running in those EU elections next June. Armin Georgian, our Europe editor. Thank you. A referendum is currently underway in Australia on whether or not to formally recognise Indigenous Australians in the Constitution and create a so-called voice to Parliament, which will establish a permanent body for them to advise the government on matters affecting First Nations Australians. According to a recent poll published this Wednesday, that referendum is currently on course to be defeated. My guest today is Sana Nakata, Associate Professor and Principal Research Fellow at the Indigenous Education and Research Centre at James Cook University. Now, for our viewers who aren't familiar with this referendum, what exactly is it proposing? The first part of the referendum proposes that we recognise Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islanders as the first peoples of this country. The second part proposes establishing a representative body to be known as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice that may make representations to the parliament and the executive on matters that affect us and our communities. And the third part enables the parliament of Australia to legislate the details of what that institution will look like, its composition, its functions, its powers. Now, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, in Australia face lower life expectancy, uh, also disproportionately poorer uh, health and education outcomes uh, than other Australians. Why exactly is that? What forms do discrimination take in Australia? We have a long history in Australia and the impact of colonisation more than 200 years ago set in course a range of um, impacts that have had sustained intergenerational effects. In the early part of the 20th century, individual states had what were known as protection acts, which moved us off country, separated our children from us and imposed restrictions on movement, employment, wages and more. We are finding in this present day that 
the Commonwealth Government and states continue to make laws about us. They continue to make laws that are specifically only about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but they do not have good information about what works and what positively impacts health, education, food security, water access and more. Now, the advice uh, of the Voice to Parliament, if this referendum is approved, would not be binding. You said it uh, a little earlier as well. So what concretely would that achieve if that advice isn't uh, advice the government is obliged to act on? This is true. So the Parliament of Australia remains the supreme lawmaking authority in the Commonwealth, and there's not very much that we can do about that. That's part of how our country is set up in the constitutional arrangements. So the voice to Parliament does not have power to compel government action, and it doesn't have the power to veto government action. But representative power is highly effective. And we know this from the sustained impact of a range of representative fields not just advisory groups, but social movements, protests, social media, the role of journalists. And we know that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that the voice to parliament offers us one more representative institution through which we can speak up and vocalise our expertise, our knowledge, our skills on the issues that affect us and how to improve outcomes for our communities. This representative field is not a direct form of legal power, but it's the stuff that democracies are built on. In Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up less than 4% of the national population. We simply can't affect our political claims at the ballot box as other groups are able to. We need some kind of connective tissue between our political claims and the representations we make and the parliament that makes decisions and laws about us. Now, there is an argument uh, that Indigenous people uh, are already uh, fairly represented in Parliament. Um, it currently has 11 Indigenous lawmakers representing almost 5% of Parliament, which is actually a slightly higher percentage uh, than the uh, Indigenous Australian population uh, nationwide. What do you say to that argument? Well, I'm a Torres Strait Islander. I'm one of less than 60,000 Torres Strait Islanders in the country and not all of us can vote. And we have never had a federal member of Parliament. The 11 Aboriginal members of parliament that do currently sit in the Commonwealth Parliament represent their electorates. They represent their states as senators or they represent individual electorates, which means they are not empowered and they are not authorised by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to represent our interests. They represent the whole of the constituencies that elected them. And how do you feel right now? We're in the middle of the referendum. Uh, polls uh, today saying that it's not necessarily going to go into your favour, but of course nothing is decided yet. How are you feeling right now, a few days uh, into early voting? Look, Australia's had 44 referendums before. This is the 45th. Only eight have succeeded. It's unusual. We require a double majority. So we need a majority of votes across the nation, as well as a majority of votes in a majority of states. This was always going to be hard. And we could certainly see the numbers are pointing against us. We always knew we would be the underdogs in this campaign. And we know that without bipartisan support from the 
Commonwealth government and the opposition, because the opposition has chosen to oppose this proposal, that it was always going to be an uphill battle. But we know that when we have conversations with Australians about what this proposal is and what it can achieve and the better future that it puts all Australians on, I still have hope. We have 10 days left to run and we're going to give it everything we've got. And the poll that I mentioned uh, just a little earlier suggests that the, pro the proposal is facing particular opposition from older voters, also people living outside of urban areas. Why is that, do you think? Your guess is probably as good as mine. Um, generally in politics, we would understand older members of the voting public to be generally more conservative. Um, outer metropolitan areas are generally characterised by lesser educated people who live under more economic stress. We are currently in the midst of a cost of living crisis in Australia. I think there are lots of Australians who have never met an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander who perhaps don't understand what the stakes are. It's going to be really important for the Yes campaign to reach those people. We know that when we can communicate directly with voters and give them the good quality information they need to make a decision that they overwhelmingly can be persuaded to vote Yes. Sana Nakata, wonderful to speak to you today on France 24. Sana Nakata, Associate Professor and Principal Research Fellow at the Indigenous Education and Research Centre at James Cook University. Thank you very much. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or want to support this listener-funded program, like listeners in McKinleyville and Willits, California, as well as one in Chicago, Illinois, did this week, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. Many, many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. The ninth meeting of the Puebla Group has been held where leaders from 18 Latin American and Caribbean nations met to discuss multilateralism, the climate change crisis, and regional unity in the face of an emerging multipolar global order. A large strike is underway in Guatemala calling for the resignation of the Attorney General and other government officials for election irregularities. In Madrid, there's a summit of energy ministers and climate leaders prior to the COP28 climate summit. They are agreeing to stick to the Paris agreements, which are currently not being achieved. Massive peaceful protests against fossil fuels have continued in the Netherlands, with over 6,000 people being arrested. Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau formally apologized for the standing ovation given in Parliament, for a Canadian-Ukrainian citizen who was a member of the SS Nazi group during World War II. Qatar has called for Israeli nuclear facilities to be subjected to International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards and for Israel to join the NPT, that's the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Radio Havana, Cuba.
The ninth meeting of the Puebla group will begin Friday until Sunday, the October the 1st, in the Mexico City that bears its name, where it was born on the July the 14th, 2019. Under the slogan, In Unity We Advance, the nearly 200 members of the group will meet in the International Baroque Museum of Puebla, with the attendance already confirmed of six former presidents of Ibero-America from Colombia, Ernesto Samper, Bolivia, Evo Morales, Honduras, Manuel Zelaya, Spain, Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, Dominican Republic, Leonel Fernandez, and Ecuador, Rafael Correa. The Progressive International Policy Agenda includes the proposals for which they will work to consolidate the region's unity. These include the creation of a common currency, a new multilateralism, the convergence of their sub-regional integration organizations, the new solidarity model of development, the energy transition and the insertion of the continent in the global south through spaces such as BRICS. They will also make a proposal in favor of achieving an end to the conflict in Ukraine within the debates on the paths to peace. The coordinator of the Puebla group, Marco Enriquez Ominami, announced that amongst those confirmed are the hosts of the event, the Mexican Foreign Minister, Alicia Barcena, the presidential candidate, Claudia Scheinbaum, and the governor of Puebla, Sergio Salomón Céspedes. The Puebla Group is four years old and since its foundation has been a space for action, reflection and influence of progressive leaders of Ibero-America which has worked for integration in the debate with UNASUR and CELAC and has promoted collaboration with Europe and with China. Social and political organizations and the Board of Community Mayors of the 48 cantons of Totoni Capan called a national strike on Monday in Guatemala to demand the resignation of the Attorney General and other officials of the Public Ministry after actions of the judicial body against the electoral authorities and the electoral process. Quote, we declare ourselves in an indefinite national strike from Monday, October 2nd, 2023, calling on all citizens and organizations in the country to join the protest, the indigenous leaders said. Those calling for mobilizations and peaceful protests demand the immediate resignation of the Attorney General, Maria Consuelo Porras, the prosecution of Rafael Curuchinchi and the Judge Freddy Orellanda, this for their actions against the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, the TSE and the seat movement of the elected president, Bernardo Arevalo. The leaders of the 48 cantons indicated that they called the strike after the public ministry raided the TSE headquarters to remove several documents related to the elections that gave the victory to Bernardo Arevalo. Last Saturday, Karin Herrera, vice president-elect for the seed movement, called for mobilizations in defense of democracy and the president-elect, Bernardo Arevalo, warning that the coup against the will of the people was still in progress. Spain's energy minister, Teresa Ribera, has warned that talks at the COP28 climate summit will be, quote, challenging, as she opened a gathering of energy ministers and climate leaders from around the world in Madrid. Spain, which holds the rotating presidency of the European Council, is pushing for an international coalition to back the 2015 Paris deal's target to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. At the COP28 conference, countries will assess how efforts to tackle the climate change are falling short of the Paris Agreement goal and discuss plans to get on track.
There are five conditions for the upcoming summit to be considered successful. The International Energy Agency Chief Fatih Birol has said these include tripling global capital expenditures on renewables, the doubling of energy efficiency improvements, and an agreement on mechanism to support clean energy financing in emerging countries. Global coal, oil, and natural gas consumption may peak before 2030, he added. More than 20 oil and gas companies have positively answered calls to align around net zero by 2050 to eliminate methane emissions and stop routine flaring by 2030, COP28 President Sultan Al-Jaber said at the conference. He did not elaborate. The COP28 summit is scheduled to take place in Dubai from November the 30th to December the 12th. The summit is seen as a crucial opportunity for governments to expedite action to limit global warming with reports so far showing countries are off track to meet promises to limit the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degrees centigrade. In the Netherlands, a massive climate protest is now in its 20th day as activists blockade the A12, a major highway. Over 6,000 people have been arrested since the action began. Activists are demanding the Dutch government and its over $40 billion in annual subsidies for fossil fuel companies. Demonstrators say police are using increasingly violent tactics to quell the movement. Extinction Rebellion Netherlands is taking authorities to court in a bid to ban the use of water cannon against peaceful protesters. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has formally apologised after he and the House of Commons gave a standing ovation for a Canadian-Ukrainian veteran who fought in a Nazi SS unit during World War II. 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka was honoured last week during a visit by Ukrainian President President Volodymyr Zelensky, who also applauded him. He had been invited by the Speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Rutter, who has since resigned from his post. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the Speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man, and has wholly accepted that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. Justin Trudeau made the apology after Canada's Conservative leader, Pierre Poilievre, described the event honouring the former Nazi soldier as, quote, the biggest single diplomatic embarrassment in the country's history. Qatar has called for the Israeli regime's nuclear facilities to be subjected to the International Atomic Energy Agency's safeguards amid Tel Aviv's ongoing snub of international nuclear regulations. The demand was put forward by the chairman of Qatar's National Committee for the Prohibition of Weapons, Abdulaziz Salmin al-Jabri, at the annual general conference of the IAEA, which is currently underway in Vienna. The official Qatar news agency, the QNA, reported. Jabri further called for Israel to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT. The Qatari official explained that these were legitimate demands that had been confirmed by, quote, international legitimate resolutions that were passed half a century ago. 
Israel, who pursues a policy of deliberate ambiguity about its nuclear weapons, is estimated to harbor two to four hundred nuclear warheads in its arsenal, making it the sole possessor of non-conventional arms in West Asia. The regime has nevertheless refused to either allow inspections of its military nuclear facilities or sign the NPT. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast, however. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You do have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, Find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thank you for listening.